Halloween. <laughs> We're back again, hot on the heels of our first sequel episode on Oliver Tree to our second sequel episode where we're going to do part two of our scary albums. And we couldn't afford Halloween sound effects, so we so just, we just made that. Yeah. <laughs> this is for the record, we're your weekly music podcast. That those dulcet tones are Zach Buggy. My name is Sean Tierney. How are things, Buggy Boy? Things aren't that bad, sir. We're heading into the proper autumnal, spooky, everyone drinking, you know, pumpkin spice lattes, wearing Ugg boots, watching watching horror films, you know, eating junk food, or basically what I do all year round. Uh, So it's just stasis for you. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. The only difference is that I have children come to my door one of the nights and I have to, like, give them some of my munchies, which... um, I, but I, I've made a point to start going to Aldi and getting the really cheap food for them because, like, you know, I, I ain't buying name brand shit for fucking random kids, man. Just to be handing that shit out? No way. Yeah. But I'm de- I am definitely getting on board with it this year, though, because last year was, like, our first Halloween since living in the scaff we're in. Mm. And because we used to live in a flat block and now we're in a house, you know, it's our first time having trick-or-treaters come to the door. And holy shit, man, when you forget that trick-or-treaters are a thing, and you're just sitting down, chilling out, vibing, watching a horror movie. And every two minutes, you got like a boom, boom, boom on your door. And you live in London. You know, as Rich yeah. Moss in the IT crowd, this is London, Jen. No one's knocking at your door with cake. <laughs> unless it's a cake with knives inside of it. So, yeah, they're like the genuine. I know it's just a kid with their parents trick-or-treating, but I've just got to just just have a bat by the telly just in case it, it gets hairy. In case the six-year-old has a knife like. Well, you never know. You never know, man. You but never I didn't know. I saw a great one the other day and it was like someone made biscuit, like Halloween biscuits and when the icing just said, uh, uh, no one likes your kids enough to sneak drugs into their sweets. <laughs> to give them free drugs. like Yeah, like, that didn't happen to trust me. Like, you're lucky enough they're getting any sweets. Like, just don't excite them. You think someone's going to pay extra to put drugs or a razor blade in your chocolate bar? No, no, no. Uh, let's hope not anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's fucked up. Don't don't give drugs or, or razor blades to children. Like that, okay. that, that's just a, for the record, one hundred and one. Yeah, but definitely. yeah, we um, I'm kind of mad at me at myself because I feel like I feel like I forgot that we would prob that like we would continue this podcast like f- like like regularly. So. Like I feel like I blew all my fucking load on, <laughs> on, on scary Halloween esque albums and music in yeah. last year's episode because I yeah. did all these fucking stupid, dishonorable mentions, and I was going back through the episode and I was like, "Fuck me! Is there anything I didn't name drop or mention? Yeah. I, I don't want to be go, re, retreading old shit here." So, I'm, I think maybe one or two of the things I'm going to talk about today, I might. Have mentioned, have mentioned in passing, yeah. but like I fucking forget, and surely the listeners fucking forget if they if they've even listened to that one. So I mean, it was and a if good you, one actually. Episode twenty nine. It was a, it was a good one. Yeah, yeah I enjoyed it. it. I really enjoyed I, it. A bit like yourself, I think that that with that one because it was like the first one we did. 
I like really thought about it and I actually picked the albums that genuinely scared the shit out of me. And this time around, I've picked stuff that have like horror links and like, then I have found a couple of records that I think are genuinely scary as well. Um, but yeah, it's slightly different, I think. But like you said, I think it went too plowed too hard into the first episode, you know? Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. But um, I think it's just, I, I always think it's interesting that whenever I think about horror and alternative music, particularly metal music, they make such like brilliant bedfellows. They sit so well with each other. And it's like there's such a crossover between horror movie fans and like metal heads or like hardcore heads. Like there's there's such a like intersection there. Like the Venn diagram overlap is massive. Well, I, I've, that's funny because I totally agree because I've often said to like, you know, like where I work, you know, I'm very much, there's one or two other lads who'd be very into the same hardcore and metal as me, but I work with predominantly electronic music heads, mm. DJs, producers who love their liquid drum and bass and ambient techno and minimal tech house. And I remember being like, and, and you know, so that's usually the music that's played at work. But like if my boss and my manager are away and it's a, it's a quiet day, then that's Buggy's time to shine. And I'll go and pick up like some fucking Mind Force and Cannibal Corpse off the shelf and I'll give the boys a bit of a crash course. And one day I got asked by one of the lads, you know, what's like, what is the appeal here? And like, and I mean, and he wasn't being a dick, he wasn't being facetious, you know, because he likes hard techno and fucking mm. he likes abstract left field shit. So he, but he was just kind of like asking me and I just said to him, I was like, you're big in the movies, aren't you? We often talk about films and... I said, you're big in horror and disturbing horror movies. And he said, yeah. And I said, this is kind of the audible equivalent to that in my mind. If I'm like, like I won't watch a horror movie if I'm really hungover and not in a good place and don't want, like I need, I need to watch Pineapple Express again or something. Yeah. But, but like, but if I'm in, the, if I'm in the proper mood and I'm chilling and vibing and I want to watch something, it's the same. Like if I'm like crippling, like hungover, I'm not going to listen to like a Necrophagist album on the way to work. No, but, no, no, no. No, there's a time and a place, but there's If I'm hungover, man, I'm putting on like Mean Girls or I have yeah. to fucking like, if I have to drive somewhere when I'm hungover, I'm listening to like Phoebe Bridgers or something. Like, yes. you know, I'm not, I'm not fucking putting on like, any any hardcore record that we've talked about this whole year, like I'm not gonna paint a true kick the shit out of me while I'm hungover. Like, no, that's but that's precisely my point. But if but if I'm in the mood for like some fucking proper gritty violent kung fu movie, or if I'm in the mood for like some gore fest splatter horror, mm. that is kind of the same like cinematic equivalent to me in the mood to listen to some tsunami beatdown or to listen to some really grim, horrible, horrifying black metal. It, there is definitely similar connotations between the moods I'm in when I want to experience horror cinema or I want to listen to like metal or aggressive music. They're, and they, they kind of provide a similar catharsis for me if that makes sense it does 100 i think that's something we touched on on that first episode where i mentioned that like the lingua ignota album that i had in my second pick i can only listen to that every now and then you know that's not an everyday listening type of record in the same way like something like military gun i whack on and i jump around the place have a good bit of crack like so it's it's like you said i think horror movies and like extreme metal tick similar boxes in our heads you know and i just think it's always interesting how much of an overlap there is between alternative music fans 
and people are into like grim horror shit, you know? Oh, I did just want to say, though, that that doesn't necessarily always mean that when horror and metal music or metal musicians come together and share worlds, that it leads to good material and good art. Because more often than not, it fucking doesn't. Uh, I, 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 I think that's probably a fair assessment. Like Danzig, Misfits, basically the pioneers of horror punk and will forever be legends for that. But holy shit, the movies Danzig has made are are some of the most what atrocious. Vampirella Ver- or some Verotica. shit. Veronica. Oh my yeah. God. That, that is worth watching like shit faced with mates just for how bad it is. What was um, Danny Phil's one? Cradle of Fear? Cradle of Fear. No. Uh, uh, was it? I think it's Cradle of Fear. Cradle of Fear, yeah. I, I actually, uh, what's funny about that is, about that movie is, okay, number one, I I actually have a soft spot for that in this <laughs> kind of grindhouse sort of way. Two, I literally only rewatched that about two years ago because it got put on Netflix, and and I was like, wait a minute, this is not the Danny film from from when I was a kid. No like, way. It was, yeah, it was added to Netflix, so I had to watch it again. How bizarre. Three, the first time I watched that, I was so disappointed to realize that most of the kills in that movie are in the fucking, like, one of the Cradle of Filth music videos. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert, guys. Yeah. You know how Cradle of Filth music videos were always so edgy? Like, That's so edgy. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, uh, it's like one of their fucking videos from the album around that same time. I can't remember. It's one of their big tunes, but like the music video, the X-rated video is just a montage of all the death scenes. And I'm like, you just gave away the whole fucking movie. I felt like I'd, I'd seen the movie when I when I saw it because I'd already seen this music video multiple times. But yeah, and while I'm at it, Rob Zombie's filmography is a lot more bad than good. But I'm not also going to front like, you know... I mean, it is bad, but I, I I also like quite a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, because like, okay, Misfits, music-wise, excellent. Like, I'm not the hugest Misfits fan. I have some buddies now who are majorly into them, but I love mm. every, everything I've heard. Uh, but, but, and then, like I said, Danzig can't make a movie for shit. No. But then, and Danny Filth, that movie is very amateur hour, but... Rob Zombie, I'm not the biggest fan of his music in general. Rob Zombie, White Zombie, you know, like... I think Rob Zombie slash White Zombie, if you take, like, the 20 best songs over his career, you're going to have a banging time at a live gig. Yeah. That's about it for me. I'm yeah. not, like, yeah. massively into him music. And, and then and then next... And then at the end of the day, it gave us, like, the wave of murder dolls and shit, which we're still kind of feeling the bite from, mm. you know. I fucking love but Rob Zombie's movies. That um that well I I like to me there is only one Murder Dolls album like. No, I like the second one as well. Oh man, Beyond the Valley of the Murder Dolls is the only bit of Murder Dolls. That's so good. So it's it, it we got a repress of it into work recently on vinyl and like that yeah, when when that album got announced I was like, "Oh yeah, whatever." And then I and then I looked at the track list again and I was like, "Oh wait, that album is all fucking bangers." So but good. Any, but anyway, Rob Zombie is a really good example of the someone from the metal world who their love for metal equates their love for horror and then actually kind of transitioned pretty much fully into becoming a horror filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And there are, I mean, 
there are certain Rob Zombie movies I love. I I think the first two are Ace, House of a Thousand Corpses, and The Devil's Rejects. The Devil's Rejects is fucking brilliant. That's his that's his magnum opus. It is. We de- it is definitely his best movie. Yeah. Yeah. And Sid Haig as the clown, Captain ah, Spaulding. It's just, so great. Just phenomenal acting, great writing. But then there's some other Rob Zombie movies like uh, that 31 with the evil clowns. It's pretty fucking dreadful. And his Halloween movies, his Halloween remakes. Although I feel like his Halloween remakes are less bad when we can, when we look at the recent Halloween trilogy that came out from David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, who just put out that new heap of shit Exorcist movie. That's so right, yeah. like, my man, you know, brilliant comedic, comedic filmmaker, Pineapple Express, uh, Joe, with a really great movie with Nick Cage, worked on Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals and Righteous Gemstones. But after the failure of Halloween and Exorcist, I really think he needs to stay away from classic horror properties. But I that's a discussion. With that, yeah. yeah, that's a discussion yeah. for another day. But I think I've made my point clear that there is a, yeah, metal, we are at a point where it is not in any way, shape or form abnormal for metal musicians to be making full-on Hollywood horror movies these days. Like, no, and it's really not at all like a weird thing to see horror-inspired metal records or alternative records. And I think we're going to discuss a few of them today. So we are. Uh, we picked three each, our usual kind of buzz. So we have, do you want to start us off? Uh, yeah, why Why the flip not? I, I have chosen... I've chosen an incredibly obvious one. Okay. Uh, yeah. So and I feel like this kind of complements my the first installment when I did a classic black metal record. I did Mayhem, De Mysteries, Dom Satanis. Okay. And I went into why, you know, that album is so frightening because of all the lyrics being written you by go, You can go back and check it out, episode 29. Out. Yeah, yeah, like singer killed himself. Another singer had to sing all the songs written by the guy who, and all the lyrics about how he wanted to kill himself. And all the guitar was recorded by a guy who was murdered by a guy who recorded all the bass. And it's a black metal classic and it's just got this eerie <laughs> atmosphere. Done. But I felt like I kind of wanted another one of those classic genre records here to to just kind of highlight again the like the long-standing ties between horror and fucking like metal music. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's going to be some eye rolls. But my first choice is the third LP from death metal genre pioneers, Cannibal Corpse. Oh yeah. Tomb of the Mutilated. Oh yeah. This, 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 this album, I feel like, I feel like as time has moved on, people have forgotten how fucking gnarly <laughs> this record is, man. So if, <laughs> for me, it was, um, it was a couple of years back, uh, Metal Blade repressed, uh, like the first, basically all like the Chris Barnes era, Cannibal mm. Corpse albums with their original vocalist before Corpse Grinder came along, um, and immediately all I thought was I need to with the mutilated and the bleeding because those two albums were like my big gateway albums in an extreme brutal death metal as a young fella. So copped them both and spent like a good adult deep dive on them. And it's funny because, you know, they say parental advisory, explicit lyrics on albums, but 
<laughs> but funnily enough, the lyrics on Cannibal Corpse Tomb of the Mutilated definitely bothered me so much less when I was 15 than they do when I'm 31. Do you know what I mean? I feel like yeah. when you're an edgy teenager, gross shit, you're like, ah, cool, ah, gross, ah, violent. And then you become an adult and like you actually keep track of the news and you become like empathetic and you start beginning to think abstractly about life and you read the lyrics again. And you're like, Jesus fucking Christ almighty. Like, <laughs> I have dinner to cook. I have like, I have my niece to pick up from school. Jesus Christ. Like, am I on a list for listening to this record now? Like, that's kind of where I get from it. Yeah. But now, and I know anyone listening is probably going to be like, yo, bro, but it's Cannibal Corpse. All Cannibal Corpse lyrics are death and blood and violence and gore. I'm just, I'm just reading the track list here. Oh, it's, I'm, I'm, it's I'm going to spectacular. I'm going to get there. Yeah, trust me. There's even, so, so, okay, quick aside. Rest in peace, big man Trevor Stranad from the Black Dahlia murder. Rest in peace. But, yeah, one of the best metal vocalists of all time. And there's a great clip of him being interviewed in the Cannibal Corpse documentary about when he was getting into Cannibal Corpse as a kid and he had like listened to like their first or second album and really liked it and saw they had a new album out and he said that he was about 13, 14 and he was in the record store and he picked up Tomb of the Mutilated and he goes, I turned it around, I looked at the track list, I immediately saw the song titled Entrails Ripped from a Virgin's Cunt and I put it back on the shelf and I had this voice inside me say, not yet Trev. You're not ready, buddy. <laughs> I says I literally do, I had to pass over it for a while because I was I was not, I was afraid to approach it. And this is the thing about Cannibal Corpse and about this album. You see, gore and like murder and all those type of fucking horror topic lyrics, they are a big staple of death metal. Yes, but Cannibal Corpse were one of the big ones to lower the tone <laughs> below how low it already was. And for all the shit you can give to Chris Barnes, who is a twat or a pussy, as Anal Cunt wrote in a song, uh, and before they booted him out because of his shit vocals and like his just arrogance and narcissism, those first four Cannibal Corpse albums, Chris Barnes did a lot for writing incredibly bleak, horrible subject matter to a point where you could, I guess you could credit Chris Barnes with being one of the biggest influences on the early noughties, deathcore, edgy MySpace scene where all the lyrics were so misogynistic and graphic and horrible. And I guess it's a weird thing to credit someone with, but if you want to give someone their props, Chris Barnes is the big influence on that. So I think uh, that it's, it's just... It's important to point out that if you think that these lyrics advocate violence towards women and all that, I mean, you know, give your head a wobble. Like it's, it's cartoonish. It's stupid. It's, it's grindhouse splatter. Like it's purpose, purposefully like offensive. That's what they're yeah. trying to do. It's supposed to be stupid like it's like this is the musical metal 80s equivalent to like driller killer maniac like splatterhouse fucking video nasties yeah. this was a metal band trying to give them um, like everyone had like this was like the fucking mid 80s wasn't it uh no this is 92 at 92. this point yeah so they'd been working away through the late 80s everyone had justice and kill them all 
and Black Album had just come out and metal and metal was getting very popular and mainstream and Cannibal wanted to be if Metallica were like if Metallica were like you know the commando or like the fucking the predator of metal music Cannibal Corpse wanted to be the the video nasty they wanted to be the driller killer of it mm-hmm. and the first two albums eaten back to life and butchered at birth <laughs> Like eating back to life is a lot of fun. It's very scrappy. It's very amateur in a really charming way. But lyrically, that album is much more zombie influenced and obvious gore and maggot full of skulls and shit like that. Mm. And then Butchered at Birth is when shit started getting a bit hairy and Chris Barnes really started discovering that inhuman, low, like indecipherable growl he had. And that's when the lyrics started taking a dark turn, but it wasn't until Tomb of the Mutilated, this third full length, that a lot of critics to this day actually regard Tomb of the Mutilated as a pseudo-concept album, because if you genuinely read the lyrics start to finish on Tomb of the Mutilated, it very much seems to follow one throughway point of a narrative, which I'm going to do my best to to, 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 to to wrap up very succinctly, but uh, it seems to be about a dude who is cursed by a shaman to, yes, there are, the, the word shaman's curse are literally in this album. Um, uh, and it seems to be about Chris Barnes writing from the point of view of a character who was cursed by a shaman to crave the flesh of women of dead women and children like a living zombie so he goes on a murder spree which then turns into necrophilia and pedophilia and we end up going through so the opening track on this album is one of cannibal corpse most famous songs and strangely enough in the context of this album probably the most accessible lyrical song which is the best it's one of the best death metal songs of all time yeah, and it's one of the best death metal album openers of all time. Hammer Absolutely. Smash Face. Hammer Smash Face is unbelievable. A brutal, vicious, four-minute cut about beating someone's face and head in with a hammer. And it starts off introducing us to our character, who's already quite a monster, who likes to kill people with hammers. But then we get to I Come Blood. Um, yeah, and... Yeah, amazingly, this has become kind of an internet sensation. Yes, because, because of the way Corpse Grinder introduces it on light or on stage, where he's like, "This song is about shooting blood from your cock." <laughs> like, exactly, it's, it's, it's so bizarre. It's, so, it is beautiful, bizarre and beautiful. So then, after I come blood, you get to addicted to vaginal skin, and that is pretty much the cut that introduces us to our shaman and tells us that this murderous man has been possessed by a shaman who makes him uh, want to, you know, I think there's a line about beginning the clit carving. So yeah, that's kind of where we are at this point on the record. And throughout the rest of the album, then we get slight tangents from our horror man's main journey of murder and cannibalism underneath the shaman's spell. Like, uh, what is it? Oh, yes, Split Wide Open. Mm. Uh, Split Wide Open actually takes on a Cronenbergian style where it's a song about a couple who choose to have a baby every year so they can eat the baby. 
Jesus Christ. Yeah, uh, and they look forward as the months go by to when they can have their big blood orgy with their baby's corpse. And yeah, then we get back to our man who has gone from being addicted to vaginal skin to becoming a full-blown necropedophile. And I don't need to go into any specifics on the lyrics on that song. No. It's a, it, it's the Ron Seal of death metal. It does exactly what it says on the tin. It's the song from the point of view of a necropedophile, which ironically, it pains me to say, is one of the best cuts on the album because the bass <laughs> on this is so thick. The riffs are so catchy. It's groovy as hell. The blast beats are tasty. And oh my God, uh, you're better off if you're squeamish. Do you remember years ago, I'm talking early YouTube when you had the misheard lyrics videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there was one for Necropedophile and it made the song a much more fun, feel good version that you could handle a lot better without feeling too nasty and guilty for what the fuck you're listening to. And then just to breeze over, the main kind of other cuts that need to be mentioned are as I said, the aforementioned entrails ripped from a virgin's cunt, which is again another very succinct lyrical song. I don't I don't think I need to go into the specifics about what that is. No. And you have post-mortal ejaculation, which again goes into more necrophilia. And uh, I think Beyond the Cemetery touches on vampirism, where he feels like he's almost now a vampire. But my point is, and this I know this lyrical aesthetic would continue into the next album, The Bleeding, which was Cannibal's fourth album and the final with Chris Barnes, which is my probably my favorite Cannibal Corpse album. And that continues, you know, with songs like Fucked with a Knife and Stripped Raped and Strangled and Yeah. But and Force Fed Broken Glass, which is a banger. But Tomb of the Mutilated seems to really, you know, a lot of cuts. The lyrics reference previous, like it, songs later in the album, mention the shaman again, or mention the, the all the bodies left in the wake, and so there definitely seems to be a through a narrative through line on Tomb of the Mutilated, which didn't exist on Eaten Back to Life or Butchered at Birth. So it feels like it was Cannibal Corpse's most conceptual album to that point, almost to where I would almost credit it as being probably the first like narratively locked in kind of arcing death metal concept album, even though it, it isn't the concept about any fucking old daisies yeah, yeah, yeah. or it's very much a concept album about murder and rape and violence and gore. And like I said, this is, and people are like, Oh, I can't believe you're talking about these topics, but I'm talking about them. Like, you can go watch like fucking like there's that old maniac horror film about the dude scalping ones and putting them on mannequins. And then Elijah Wood made a really tasteful uh, artist house first person point of view remake of it. But it was still immensely gory and gratuitous and fucked. That to me is like look at a cannibal corpse tomb of the mutilated and then looking at Sanguis Sugabog homicidal ecstasy. It's a, it's a modern band taking a more polished new approach to that old violent, despicable sound. This is the death metal album equivalent to a dirty grindhouse video, nasty splatter fest of its time movie which has not aged well and is ugly and is hideous and upsetting. And Cannibal Corpse, like I said, they make it such an awkward point because I own this on vinyl and each time I listen to it, I'm reading the lyrics to each song because it's the only way you can understand Chris Barnes. And I'm literally like, each song I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, gee, oh, oh, oh. 
that exact reaction makes it a perfect entry into our scariest uh, yeah. records pantheon, I, I think. And my point is that even though I'm reacting that way to the lyrics to each song, the reason I continue to listen is because of how fucking mega and crunchy yeah. the riffs are and how much of a virtuosic bassist Alex Webster, Alex Webster is. And it's just, the tunes are so ridiculously primitive and almost punky in how they're written and put together and they're recorded so raw. And that energy and viciousness is just so enjoyable that you forgive the utter vulgarity and inanity of these lyrics. But I just think that's a great Halloween death metal record right there. I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, My first choice is not a scary record. I've chosen it because of its horror link. I've chosen it because of the ghoulish imagery. I've chosen it because of the satanic themes, the almost kind of faux lo-fi production, all of that stuff. It's fucking great. I love a bit of Satan thrown into my tunes. I don't believe in any religion because all religion is nonsense. But I love, I love Satan in my music. It's brilliant. It adds a kind of, you know, aural evil that I just think is fantastic. And the record I have picked is the debut release from fun of the biggest metal bands currently operating in the world. Ghost. Uh, Opus Eponymous. Shock fucking horror. <laughs> the places wake the children. Tyranny picked Ghost. Listen, I just need an excuse to talk about Ghost every now and then. Yeah, that's Look, all good. As I said, it's not a scary record at all. Like not even close. But at the time, Ghost had still retained the mystique of the anonymous band and there was this band who dressed up like a fucking scary pope and his ghouls and they brought out this really kind of underground sounding 70s rock inspired metal record and alongside all of that 70s hard rock they had a huge dose of metallica and kind of megadeth riffs like you know it was really chuggy and on top of that they had a huge ball of satan yeah talk, <laughs> and, talk to me about this for a minute because when one of the i think in our first year of reviewing we did the last ghost full length impera uh, impera and i really liked it mm-hmm. Uh, but it was my first foray into the band, even though I knew, I knew of them, like, but I, and I knew they had a lot of ire in the metal community as much as they had like lovers and adorers. But I, when I went into it, I really enjoyed it for what it was, but I did just see a lot in my research of references to their early work and their debut being a lot more 70s psychedelic inspired and a lot more satanic and dark, but still quite self-aware cheesy in, in the same vein so talk to me like i'm dumb like about this, this is, first time. this is something i was actually going to come to this idea that ghosts were somehow like this like really like true metal like hardcore underground band is a complete fallacy like <laughs> it's not true musically at least like i know like they played like all dares in london like and everything you know they played like and, and their shows were all like you know, incense and like this kind of creepy mysticism and everything. But the music, it is different to what they're doing now. Yeah. But it's still relatable. Like it's still drawing from the same things, except maybe there's less meatloaf in the, in the Opus Eponymous era. Do you know what I mean? 
yeah, yeah. Other than that, it's still like big metallic riffs. It's got like these kind of weird kind of uh, not as operatic versions of King Diamond like singing over it. Like it's, it's not that different. And this idea that, oh, Ghost sold out like and they wrote like <laughs> pop music. They've always been writing pop music. I mean... Now, the first song on this, like, it does start, like, the first lyric you hear is, Lucifer, you know? So, like, it's very, like, nailed to the mass that it's satanic and all that stuff. But, like, I don't, I don't hear the big shift. All that has happened is that they become popular. And metal fans being the most welcoming and supportive fans and all, blah, 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 load of bullshit. As soon as it gets popular, it's not cool, bro. You know, that's just all it is. That's all it is. Was it this album or another ghost album that they have a choir singing on it? But the place, I'm nearly certain I read recently that one of ghost albums, they have a choir on a song singing really satanic lyrics. And the studio, the the, the town in this where the studio was, their local choir refused to sing the song. And, oh, I, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah, and they had to. They had to get like a choir in Hollywood, California, to like record <laughs> the vocals because he was like, "That's what like one of the only liberal enough places you'll find a fucking choral choir who'll sing lyrics like that." He but, said that he one of the nameless schools apparently said he had like an interaction with the preach the priest who like oversaw the choir and he said like the man was like enraged and like nearly like teary-eyed and offended like by the prospect of using his choir to sing these lyrics but like i mean they no, do ghosts sing. don't ghosts don't say you know what i mean like those lyrics are usually reserved for like but you know that's the thing the the lyrics are satanic but this is not what in like this is not like i don't think tobias forge believes you know, that their music is evoking the power of Satan, despite the fact they have a song called Ritual on this record. It's yeah. not, that's not what it is. It's it's full it's Satanism. It's Satanic Panic Rock. Yeah. Like the only way that you could find this record scary is if you're some kind of like Bible bashing simpleton. Like that's yeah. the only way. And it's like, it's just a lot of banging tunes with big riffs, weird sounding like creepy organs and like Papa One doing his high-pitched squall. And like, as I said, the first record, the first word on here is Lucifer. Like it's just, it's cheesy, satanic 70s rock with a ghoulish pope singing it. That's what it is. And this idea that they've somehow metamorphosized into like a pop band is like, yeah, they're writing poppier song structures, but everything that was present on this record is still very much present in their in their modern day music, I believe anyway. There's a distinct I'm, true line for me. I'm getting the vibe that your first pick is like... So... If Cannibal Corpse Tomb of the Mutilated is the really gory splatter horror movie mm. that you watch mouldy off your head at two in the morning when everyone else is asleep on Halloween night, then I think this ghost record is like the album, the, the rock or metal album you listen to when you're putting up the decorations with your kids. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to go for a, a movie slash TV analogy, it's like an episode of Supernatural. Yeah. You know, which is like, it's, it's horror, it's, but it's funny and it's yeah. good. Like, you know, it's 
It's self-aware. It's PG-13 horror. Like Yes, exactly. Exactly that. And I, I've literally just gone for it for the spooky, ghoulish imagery and the horror link. And as always, I just need an excuse to talk about Ghost. I fucking love this band. I love this record. It's very much horror themed, but it is not a scary record. The next two I've gone for are much more like actually kind of scary records. But um, yeah, Ghost, Opus Eponymous is my first uh, pick. And I think it's well worth your time, particularly if you're a modern Ghost fan, fan to see where they came from. If your only exposure from them is Mariana Cross on TikTok, there's still shit on this that you could hear and be like, oh, that's really cool. Like Stand By Him, Satan Prayer. Here I sit in prayer. It's just a bouncy Satan Prayer. Like it's it's good. It's Ghosts are a fun horror movie. Yeah, I you totally know, get that. They're just a fun band, man. And I think that, yeah, it's, as I said, not scary, but definitely horror related. I fucking love it. Okay, my next pick is like, if Cannibal Corpse is the splatter 80s horror and Ghost is like the fucking, like, like, a, like an old kind of 70s spooky old school, like Scooby-Doo type horror movie, uh, then this is like, you know how every horror movie marathon has one film that isn't actually a horror, but it's just so weird and bizarre yeah. and obscure and twisted that it, it can only be lumped in with horror movies because of how upsetting and alienating it is. And you kind of don't know what genre the fucking movie still is to this mm. day. Just know it, it goes well at Halloween. That's kind of what this album is. Okay. 1991 self-titled debut full-length from Mr. Pungle. That is a great pick. <laughs> yeah, this is a Halloween album for sure. It is. It is down yeah. to like the, the kind of cartoonish fucking... imagery and... And the obscure yeah, yeah, yeah. costumes for, for, for all the music videos and the tour cycle and everything. Yeah. So like, I mean... For those of you who don't know, the condensed version, I mean, Mr. Bungle are back together right now as a thrash metal band with Scott Ian from Anthrax yeah. and Dave Lombardo from Slayer. And they're mainly, boring. Yeah, they're mainly just playing their first ever release, which was the Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny. It was like a demo, but it was like an album length demo. They've re-recorded it and reworked it. And they've just come back as a thrash metal band and they do loads of thrash and hardcore punk covers in their shows. And you know what? It's pretty boring compared to what Mr. Bungle had become way after that early demo. But the only reason I don't mind it that much is because, in essence, it was probably the most Mr. Bungle thing they could have done by getting back together. And everyone's like, oh, my God, Mr. Bungle, creators of the three three of the most brilliant, challenging, experimental alt-rock albums of all time in the 90s are getting back together. Yeah, but we're only going to be playing our exclusive thrash metal demo that we recorded when we were 16 and a bunch of covers from that era. That's all we're going to do. Do you know what's hilarious about this pick? What? I was going to pick this as well. Well, I was actually going to pick Disco Volante. I had a long discussion between this and Disco Volante. Yeah. Because California is the most accessible of the three albums. And it's far. the best. It's and the it's best. best. I it love that. California love is a, like a it's classic a record. It's an absolute yeah. worldly. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas Mr. Bungle is... <laughs> so the Mr. The debut Mr. Bungle is like Peter Jackson's uh, like slasher movies and California is Lord of the Rings. 
Yes, yes. You know, I see what yeah. you mean. Mr. Bungle is on the outside, not the the a pick for Halloween. But when you think about it, it absolutely is. I think this is a great shout. Yeah, because like as you said, like I was thinking about it between this and the second album, Disco Volante, but Disco Volante is almost a bit too. Disco Volante is like too avant-garde to be even to be scary. It's almost like a scientific experiment at times. You have to like... <laughs> Disco Volante is for those of you who don't know, Disco Volante is I suppose like Mr. Bungle are like a jazz thrash alt rock funk band. Well, yeah, well, essentially, they started out as a thrash metal band in like high school, but they all like had like obscure like influences and goofy sense of humor. And by the time they'd gotten out of high school and started making a bit of money and figuring out their vision on their next EP, Bowl of Chili, they kind of started, like you said, combining funk and almost essence of ska and jazz and a lot of big brass and big old, old genres into really hard-hitting thrash metal, hardcore punk, but not in any way that felt the norm or felt no. like, like, it, it's weird. It's this like was one not of, the Red Hot Chili Peppers me mashing funk and alternative rock. Or, like or early the, Incubus. It was like... This. Or even Mike Patton's more famous band, Fate No More. Like Fate No it, More. And, it's and a that's different the, thing. So when, and what happened was when Patton, Mr. Bungle was Patton's primary project with his childhood friends. And then he slipped into Fate No More after their original vocalist left. And he, so Patton came in for the real thing. That was the first album with him, wasn't it? And when, was it the real thing or We Care A Lot? The first one with Patton. No, No, the real thing. The real thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when the real thing dropped, when Patton was already the type of ballsy prick that when he when Fate No More, he joined Fate No More just as they were signing to Warner Brothers. And Patton was like, oh, well, if I'm signing to Warner Brothers because you think we're the new hot thing in alt rock, can you sign my other band too that I've been in since before uh, Fate No More? Because they're like my passion project. And they were like, okay, fine, whatever. This was the 90s when a label like Warner Brothers that make fucking Batman movies would fucking sign fate no more and be like oh yeah you can sign your other band too so mr bungle wound up on warner brothers and they stayed there for all three albums which are probably three of the most experimental albums warner brothers have ever released so like i said the bowl of chili ep that like had a lot of like hardcore and thrash mixed with funk elements and jazz and <clears throat> but when they were signed to Warner Brothers then. And Patton was after getting off with Fate No More and doing well with them and kind of experiencing life in a big band, in a big studio. One of the biggest bands. They exploded. Like, I I think for people who don't know, like Fate No More became one of the biggest bands in music, like full stop, uh, in the, like, early 90s. And... (laughs) Then, then and it's really, comes Mr. Bug. That's the thing, you know, no offense to Mike Patton, but he was not the type of guy who usually would be in a band that would get as big as Faith No More. Patton's an outsider, like, and very much so, and a provocateur, and wound up in a band with enough of an angle 
at that time that they got like so much bigger than they ever like I'll put it this way Mike Patton proved who like a lot of the real thing was done when Patton joined and then Patton proved what happens when Fate No More are left in his proximity for too long when Angel Dust happened and you know what I mean but also he proves what happens when you get when you have a brilliant like musical band which they are and you add in arguably the greatest vocalist of all time yeah I'm getting off topic now we are we are we're we're deviating no more yeah so anyway I think Patton almost two things happened one I think Patton liked and was proud of the real thing, but was also like, this isn't really what I, this isn't fucking, it isn't, uh, it isn't scratching that artistic uh, for him. Like he's getting the money for it, but it's not, it's not getting the mojo there. And I think working with them, being in a big studio for the recording of the real thing, getting Bungle signed and having Warner Brothers fuck you money meant Patton and Bungle could now make like the album that like that since their teens they'd probably talked about and taste and con- conceptual wise and composition wise they were now at a place to achieve and they brought in John motherfucking Zorn avant-garde jazz absurdist mentalist multi-instrumentalist fucking whatever as producer and had Warner Brothers money and so great And they basically created a fucking carnival of nightmare music in. And I mean, this album pulls from funk, jazz, psych rock, prog rock, death metal, thrash metal, hardcore punk, cabaret, fucking vaudeville. Like, and it it pulls from the most extreme versions of all of these doo-wop fucking soul music fucking 50s, 60s rock and roll. Like, this album takes every genre and it takes the most absurd and aggressive and extreme versions of them and smashes them into these bizarro songs. Like, this album sounds like someone, like, it's like, this song sounds like you've been kidnapped, blindfolded, had a pound of mescaline shoved up your anus and like down, made down a bottle of absinthe and you're pushed into a carnival from fucking The Devil's Rejects. Like, that's what this album sounds like. This album is nightmarish. And I mean, even down to the cover, which is this eerie drawing of a really overweight, sweaty, decrepit looking clown. The aesthetic for the album, which like for all the music videos and the, the whole tour, like Patton wore a fucking gimp mask. And all the band like wore dresses and wore all these warped clown masks. And like they looked like something out of a grimy, garagey horror movie of that time. And the lyrics on here are just bizarre, abstract, absurd, poetic, grim, vile, disgusting, dystopian. Like... This album has got it all, man. Like from that opening track, quote unquote, which was originally called Travolta until John Travolta threatened to sue for using his fucking name. So that song. 
to get it to, to get Warner Brothers to put out an album in 1991 that the first minute of the track is just silence and rain dropping and someone in the background crying and uh, about four or five long slow thuds until a bottle breaks and then a fucking circus organ comes in uh which goes on for about a minute and then uh bassline and brass section comes in that sounds like Stevie Wonder's Inner Vision era on fucking acid at a circus that and those organs and Patton comes in, you know, I've had a spectacle. I feel like I'm a child being kidnapped by the Pied Piper at that point. Like yeah. the album is like the album shits on an album that came out around the exact same time. Marilyn Manson's Portrait of an American Family, which I love and is very frightening in its atmosphere and it's grimy, dingy or oh, children shouldn't be here. And this is a real haunting album. But then when you hear Bungle, you're like, oh, no, this is the one to scare that. Like, per- yeah. Manson's Portrait of American Family was to scare the teenagers. Bungle's self-title just scares fucking everybody, man. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's one of those records that like the English language can't describe properly, I don't think. And like, I know that sounds like a big ridiculous statement, but genuinely try try and describe this record. Like, you know what I mean? It's just, like, just I, I for, challenge everyone to try. Just for posterity's sake, Wikipedia's struggling attempt, genre, Funk metal, experimental rock, avant-garde metal, ska, jazz fusion. Uh, and then 73 minutes, 19 seconds. Label, Warner Brothers, producer, John Zorn. This album is a paradox. Like, like it shouldn't exist. Oh, it fucking shouldn't, man. It, like, And the fact is that it, it happened because, like I said, Patton, who's a fucking outsider, wound up in Faith No More just as they took off. And he was able to put his hand down because in the 90s you could do that. And he was like, I'm getting signed to Warner Brothers, lads, and I'm going to give Mr. Bungle fuck you money. Let's do this. And he brought Bungle up to a place where they were given three albums in the 90s to just do what the fuck they wanted with mass exposure. And it starts with this debut, which for me is the creepiest thing on here. I mean, after Travolta, or, or quote unquote, you go into like slowly growing death, yes, which yeah. is like equal parts, one of the funkiest and heaviest songs on the album. Squeeze Me it's- Macaroni is ridiculous. Like I know there are people out there who like love heavy and experimental music who would probably hear Squeeze Me Macaroni and think it's the biggest bunch of nonsense ever because and it's a song. They'd have a solid argument. Yes, because it's, I mean, how long is it? It's, it's five and a half minute song mm-hmm. that basically combines Beach Boys surf rock with circus funk and all of the lyrics are food, sex, innuendos. Until you get to that point, the fucking Barry Manilow on a Copacabana! And it's just, it, it's, it's fucking ludicrous. And like, but it has this dingy aura. It feels like you're listening to... It, like this album, like uh, uh, use another weird analogy. This album is like being a 10 year old kid who gets blindfolded and you're told, oh, we're bringing you somewhere surprising for your 10th birthday. And it's like, okay, and you wake up and you're at a circus and it's like, ah, and there's a band in front of you and they're going to play all your favorite songs. And you're like, yeah, and they're all clowns. And you're like, whoa. And then they start playing. And then you realize like the circus tent is all fucking filthy. And you realize like the clowns in the band are John Wayne Gacy. 
and you realize that like you know the cotton candy's got maggots in it and like that's what this that's the aura this album provides like through all of its fun beach boys fucking surf rock fun funky groove it's fucking demented it's demented man and it's fun it's played with a sinister aura. It mm. knows all of the notes to play to make. It's all the creepy inflections that just give it this weird vibe. And then, I mean, but what's really strange then is you have songs like Stub a Dub. Uh, I think it's I think it's either Egg or Stub a Dub. I think it's Stub a Dub. That's about the bassist. I think it's the bassist dog that died. Yeah, Stub. Stub, was yeah. The dog, I think. Yeah, yeah. Stub was the dog. Yeah. And Stub a Dub is this weird, again, psychedelic Beach Boys funk metal kind of track. But all the lyrics are actually about the dog dying. But it just kind of adds to the bizarre nature of the record. There shouldn't be a genuine song on this album, but there is. It's almost like you're looking through the journal entries of a lunatic or a murderer. Or someone descending into lunacy or something. Yeah, and there's just a chapter that's just about the love of his dog that changed Mm. his life and shit in between all the fucking mental absurdity of cuts, like, like Stub a Dub, the song, the most sincere song on the album about a dog is followed up by easily probably the most demented cut on the album. My ass is on fire. Yeah. This song breaks down in the middle and you just hear Patton with this sultry, sickly whisper repeatedly saying, I'll stab you. And that genuinely feels like you're being followed by a pervy flasher down an alleyway while he's just whispering that he's going to stab you and there's nowhere to go. Like that's, I think that's, that's, what that's kind of what the whole record feels a bit like, you know, like you're being followed by a pervy kind of clown who may or may not want to kidnap slash murder you. It's, it's really, really grim and, and perfect for this list. And the last thing I will mention is my favorite cut on this record, which is simultaneously, probably musically, one of the most consistent and accessible songs, but also lyrically, one of the most depraved songs that I've fucking ever heard for me personally. The Girls of Porn. This song. Like I said, this song sounds like, and as I said, Patton like, and the boys in Bungle, everything's executed with such approach and finesse that it just always works. This song literally combines, it's like ZZ Top meets funk. It's full on like diddle, little, diddle, pep, diddle, little, with those big fucking brass section. And the, but the lyrics on here are about porn addiction. And all of the songs is about Patton singing with this huge, funky inflections. And he's like, and because like Patton's a chameleon when he wants to be, he can play these vocal characters. And like the character, <laughs> like no one in the early 90s had heard a song with a big, funky, accessible, catchy hook that goes, my hand gets tired and my dick gets sore. Uh. But the girls of porn want more. So I flip through the pages one more time. And I just let my jism fly. Hey, yeah, yeah. That song is fucking up. That, that is a real funky, groovy tune that has like sticky Playboy pages stuck together, grime of it. Like it's. And then, and then in the bit in the middle of the breakdown, when he's like, you know, 
We got tingling tissues and hairy balls and hairy bushes. <laughs> S&M, whips and chains. We got pregnant ladies with menstrual pains. And it's like he goes through all the fetishes. It's like... um. Was a guy, was a girls who eat your pee and poo, and guys who'd love to fuck your shoe. And, and it's, it's so just, bizarre. And he goes into like extra, like shit. I don't want to quote. Like when yeah. he just, but then he pulls it back. But it's so funky and gro- it never really falls off the track. Like it's a great song. It's brilliant. <laughs> I've showed this to my dad, who loves yeah. funk and blues, yeah. and and he's like looked at me and been like, "This is." There's 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 musical elements in here that could have been a hit classic, and I'm like I know, and the boys have those chops, but they chose to write a song about porn addiction, vile, disgusting porn addiction to to a violent degree where it's hindered his life through this incredibly funky, commit to the bit group rock. Fantastic. So this whole album is just sticky, weird, unsettling, but. So funky and so fun that like like the metal elements and the really heavy elements are like thirty percent of it. Most of it stays in funk and psych and surf rock, but it's so self aware and sinisterly put together and disgustingly sticky that like this is that weird Halloween outsider movie that you're just like, where else am I going to watch this except Halloween? Mister Bung titled man, it'll make you need a shower. Definitely. Um. Not just because you were dancing so hard to the grooves, but <laughs> it's just fucking filthiness. The, I think filthy is actually a good um a good word for uh my next pick as well. Um this is a band that featured on your list first time around. Uh you've Ooh. mentioned them already. Uh and I've gone for them again. Oh, I a, already know. I already a know. Different records. As genuinely evil sounding as Demisterius is. This was literally a very, very strong contender for this top three for me. Yeah. Uh, the record that I actually find really scary is Ordo Ad Chao by Mayhem. Um, <gasps> I think that this record showed Mayhem were far from a spent force and it kind of retains their terrifying evil power years after their inception. It had a 2007 release date, featured Attila Sihar on vocals. This record sounds like it's crawling out of the abyss as it slowly makes its way towards you. It's disorientating, it's vicious, it's dank. I love how they like they completely subvert musical expectations by going in like an avant-garde direction rather than pure black metal. It's like it's produced really badly. Like it's mixed terribly. It's mixed like pure shit, but it, that's part of the point. I um, think, I think Hellhammer, the drummer said, like, again, you're, you're the music producer head here, but I think he, he said in an interview when the album came out that the drums weren't EQ'd. Yeah. Uh, it, that's exactly what it sounds like. It's mixed yeah. awfully, but it he said all he adds to it though. Yeah. His, his exact words were, the drums weren't EQ'd. The whole thing sounds necro as fuck. It That's does. what they want from it. And there, there are blasts of like that furious black metal that, you know, that mayhem are synonymous with. But they emerge from like this fucking swamp of dissonance and non-EQ'd drums. And like, it's, it's a bizarre record. Um, It's actually... It's really disorientating. It's not. It's not at all straightforward. 
and I know that mayhem are never really straightforward, but at least with like kind of normal black metal records, you know, there's a structure to the songs, but some of the stuff on Ardo at KO almost feels formless. You know, the, the opening track, A Wise Birth Giver, is like just noise and it's was- horrible and horrifying and it's it's so bizarre. I think there's stuff on this record that musically, uh, and I'm talking about all of this before I get to my main point with this record, um, musically is disorientating and really unsettling and like, creepy and scary and oppressive and just dark and demonic and evil but the real crux of this record the thing that sends it over the top or into the abyss maybe rather than over the top um is the vocal performance of attila yeah it honestly feels at some points he has this weird trick of not sounding human, which, you know, plenty of, plenty of like extreme metal vocalists can sound inhuman at times and they can sound like they're conjuring from, you know, animal noises almost. But another thing he does is add a, an element that's almost too human to his vocal. Like there's a kind of wail in work of ages at the two minute mark. It just sounds like someone is like crying. Like if someone is, unable to cope with their existence. And it's just kind of this weird, uh, and it's like, oh my God, what am I listening to? And but it, like, it, it, but it, it just, it adds like this layer of like this horrific, grim uncertainty and like just this unsettling, creepy nature to that. Like it sends like these shivers up my spine. It gives me goosebumps and I, I find Attila's performance on this, as much as his work with other bands, he's worked with Sun and his other work with Mayhem and everything is 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 what it is. He's a fucking gifted vocalist. But he's a really unique performer. He goes from growling, wails, bellows and shrieks. But then these like just kind of expulsions of emotion that he can conjure are kind of almost unlike anything else in the realm of music. Um, I think that this record is one of a kind I think that Mayhem are a one of a kind band there's several records in their discography that could be part of this list but this record from the production to the performances is a weird disorientating record that I think that few would argue is terrifying I think if you didn't even if you didn't listen to extreme music and you put this on you would not know what to fucking do with yourself and even as people who listen to extreme music and know a lot about the genre you know have listened have a lot of experience with it this is still a scary record the thing that i find very curious is that i totally agree with you on that vocal element because if you actually look at attila's solo material the uh even recently i think earlier the this year he put out a new album where he has this like personal project where he goes to view different like monolithic sites and old religious monuments because he's really inspired by old vocal like vocal you know vocals is his life it's his art it isn't he's not just a singer in a metal band he finds like he's it. a yeah he's almost a scholar of like 
old vocal traditions and patterns and that's why like there's elements of his vocals like when he features with Sun and stuff that sound like Mongolian throat singing mm. and, and he even couldn't incorporate that in Mayhem shit and then he's into like old Gregorian chants and so like he's literally done these projects where he goes out to like these old ancient mo monoliths and monuments and he'll just watch them uh, and record uh, vocal patterns that he becomes inspired by while watching them from the studies he's done of the people of that time of their vocals and records these ambient vo so those elements are so strong on Ordo and KO and I think a big part of that is the fact that Ordo and KO is the fourth full-length Mayhem album mm -hmm. but it's the second with Attila on vocals because Attila stepped in to do a basically session vocalist after dead suicide to record the vocals for the mysterious dom satanis but then he left and they had maniac for a grand declaration war in camera so i think that because of grand declaration of wars really avant-garde experimental weird kind of spoken word sound and then camera's back to basics big production polished black metal when maniac left and they brought in attila two things one i think attila because when he joined Day Mysteries, he for Day Mysteries, he was essentially a session vocalist. And he only had a there was only a couple of songs he had to finish kind of you know joining the dots between and coming up with a few vocal lines here and there. And you can hear moments of Attila coming out on Day Mysteries, like at the end of the title track, when he does that big Gregorian operatic kind of fucking chant, and you hear the more human elements where he doesn't sound like a demon spewing vomit through his teeth. He sounds like a man on a mountain with a fucking book of the dead and Necronomicon mm. chant spirits. Like, so I feel like order with KO was his moment to finally bring his time with son, his studies of fucking old vocal like traditions and, and black metal. And I think simultaneously his urge to show himself off as a vocalist, different to a guy singing dead's vocal patterns and the fact that now that Maniac was gone and Chimera, they probably they did get a few comments that it was so polished that I'd say all the, their ideas synced where they were like, Attila wanted to do something really outside of the box and experimental vocally. And the band wanted to do something really grimy and dingy. And I think there's something to be said for the fact it's the last Mayhem album with Blasphemer on guitar. Absolutely. And it's, and it's also like you felt like it was Blasphemer's chance to be like, you know what? I don't know if I've got another Mayhem album in me. Let me see how much I can creatively push myself and push the band for my life. Like, there's just a lightning in a bottle quality to order with KO and the why Mayhem fans like click with it so much. And I couldn't agree with you more. When I first got into order with KO, I tried and I tried and tried to find a correlation between the opening track. Um, Always Bark Giver. A wise birth giver, and then that goes into a wall of water. But like a wise birth giver is this, like you said, it's this instrumental kind of intro track. But as many times as I've listened to this album, there's almost a sonic refusal for there be for there to be any correlation or companionship between a wise birth giver and then into wall of water. The album just starts with this malevolent, repetitive, droning, horrific riff. And these just fucking monstrous out of sync drums and this constant wall of just grim tonal dread for three and a half minutes. And then it just ends. 
then Wall of Water starts. There's no like, oh, I was like, oh, this is like an... In-. No, no, it's just letting you know yeah. this album has no fluidity to it. This mm-hmm. album is just dread, sonic dread. And the la- all the only thing I want to say is that to bring it back to your thing about Attila sounding too human at times, which is something like he's drawn on from like his study of Gregorian chants. Mm-hmm. And that genuinely sounds like a monk wailing to the new gods in a temple like at times on this record. But yeah. the reason I'm so glad this is in our Halloween second Halloween episode is that this album, without a doubt, even though I mentioned Dim Steers Dom Satanis in last year's episode, this album has easily one of, for me personally, the scariest moments in a musical album ever. And I am 31 and I still listen to this album yearly because I love it. The opening, there's a vocal line with no music, it's just vocal on Deconsecrate is one of the most frightening things I have ever heard. He sounds like... Like it's an, so scary. <laughs> there's no words for it. It sounds like, like an eight foot sized eagle with tentacles having its throat pulled out oh. from anus. It's that that fucking and then and the screech and tortured shriek of it, and then that fucking crushing grim riff comes in, and the consecrate is just. It's monstrous, man. And then you go into the 10 minute illuminate, illuminate afterwards. That, that, Ordo and KO, we are ba- we're basically onto the Lovecraftian section of Absolutely. the heart. This is like the, the oral accompaniment of Cthulhu coming out yeah. of the ocean and like just yeah. laying waste to everything. It's yeah. so is- scary. It's so oppressive. It's so experimental. It's so avant garde. It's so heavy and it is a genuinely unsettling scary record and i couldn't not pick it no like this, i i had to pick it it's almost this is like cosmic horror black metal it's 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 it, it's it's from like a world and from a time and a cosmos that is too heavy and too it almost has that the, the, even the production makes it sound like our human ears can't hear <laughs> Every, the intricacies of it that's yeah. why it sounds so twisted into because that's the best we can comprehend of how otherworldly and alien it is and even the fact that the lyrics are very much about like these esoteric themes of new gods and other worlds and being like pr- controlled by beings we can't understand there's very lovecraftian themes in it but they're more subtle but yeah musically this is the cosmic horror we know nothing of the universe and we are like under the whims of ancient beings we can't understand and this is the music of them that's kind of the that's the this isn't the church burning black metal of, no, of mayhem, no, no, old no. mayhem this is cosmic mayhem and it's yeah. it's far more fucking dreadful so good so good so that was my that's my second pick what's your final pick my final pick hoy have we gotten there already we've gotten there already so I kind of, I kind of fucked it. I, 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 I left my final pick. My final pick is like the weirdest one. It's like weirder than Mister Bungle. Not weird, but like it's the least horror centric one. Okay. Um, to 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 use my example earlier of like Miss like Hannibal Corpse being the grindhouse bladder film, yeah. and then fucking thing being the you know Mister Bungle being that weird avant garde film. You don't really know where to put it. This is like the 
this is kind of like the blue ruin green room art house almost character driven depressing drama with hyper violent elements more so than like a fucking actual horror but this definitely would this would work on Halloween because it would like leave you shaking with cold mm. dread over just how horrific and depressing and bleak it is this is a very this like this is an album this is the shortest album on my list but it's also probably the hardest to get through uh, this is the second and subsequently final album by the screamo band Old Grey okay. and the album is called Slow Burn so Old Grey were a screamo act that were essentially three of the four members of Sorority Noise okay right but Old Grey were active first so Old Grey were like a screamo trio a 90 screamo revival trio and then Cam started uh, the front man started sorority noise writing emo pop punk and brought in the lads from that and then they took off and sorority noise became the big primary project but then he kept working on all gray releases so all gray's final release was this second album slow burn now for context cam boucher from sorority noise and all gray the songwriter and frontman vocalist guitarist and both he's lost a lot of like friends through suicide I think at least two or three. The final Sorority Noise album, You're Not As As You Think, mm. that, that album deals with a lot of uh, the loss of his friends. And it's that's a really like that's a really difficult album to get through as well. But it, it's within the confines of emo and pop punk and folk. But Old Grey was like his outlet for dealing with those emotions in a much more visceral and like cathartic and aggressive sense. Now, to anyone with their for their emo joint like knowledge kind of canon cam from old gray and sorority noise and brendan from modern baseball really good friends are really good friends from last i know uh but in between modern baseball second and third albums brendan from modern baseball was diagnosed with bipolar and he uh, even tried to attempted to commit suicide and there's a good documentary online about Modern Baseball's third album and about all the songs that Brendan wrote or about him, his diagnosis and his suicide attempt. And so all of that b- builds into Slow Burn, uh, Old Grey's second album. There's a song on that album called, Bl- I think it's Blunt Trauma, and it's about 30 seconds long. And Cam, it begins with Cam screaming, Brendan put down the knife. I love you too much to let you take your own life. Uh, yeah, like him screaming that, like 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 someone screeching down a phone. Jesus Christ! Yeah, this album at the midpoint of this album, you get a, a collaboration with a spoken word poet, and it's basically the longest cut in the album. It goes on for nearly five minutes, and it's essentially this poem about a young fella who has depression and has a journal with bad, with suicidal thoughts. And while he's cutting and he works in like some shop in a stock room and while he's trying to cut into a box, he cuts into himself with a razor and he gets sent to psych ward and the whole song starts detailing his just in and out of a psych ward and his growing to know the friends in the psych ward and his like, and then like getting like 
threatening letters from people who he works with, bullying him, like giving him razor blades for his birthday, telling him do it right next time. And as this horrific poem is just going on and getting more and more grim and frightening, the song just keeps building to this fucking dreading, droning pommel. And then the drummer does his own spoken word sections and you have songs that are like these more melancholic moments where like it, it it sounds horrible, but like the, it's it's almost like the music, the songs where they kind of reference like dying and like going to an afterlife have these melancholic musical moments under them. Like that's the peaceful moment is to die, and the the album is in like two halves, where the first half is primarily these minute long, crushing, violent, just power violent screamo cuts, and then the second half is much more instrumentally led with a lot of like spoken word poetry sections the beginning of the album the first half like because this album is only like 20 minutes so the first half runs by in about seven six seven minutes it's like really short minute long cuts the opening track pulpit the intro the intro track is like a spoken word poem from the drummer and while he's doing that this dissonant fucking like blistering post fucking metal like bombast keeps building and you start hearing another distortion of the drummer behind his spoken word poem which begins with him saying the first time I contemplated my own death and then that's reflected with Cam the vocalist shrieking the poem back so you have these three vocals like someone's mental state deteriorating and then that goes into communion and communion is just like this album just sounds like someone's mental state completely inverting it it's just like utterly terrifying like the the one bit of respite is the song the, the most kind of sing, song song is a kind of a more post-punky post-hardcore song called everything is in your hands and that has the line i genuinely don't think i can handle another call telling me another friend is dead oh, jesus and, christ yeah and and then that's followed by the song about Brendan and then the spoken word poem about fucking a dude attempting suicide. And like this, this is probably the, the least Halloween-y and most just genuinely depressing albums. I mean, there's something to be said for the fact this is only 20 minutes because, I mean, it feels like it's it's like just a less than a half an hour moment to just kind of allow himself to just, it's like scream therapy. Mm -hmm. It's like an album of just like taking all of the darkest thoughts of these deaths that he's accrued and these people he's lost and these bitter feelings and these absolutely dreadful thoughts that go through his head and kind of just distilling them into 20 minutes of utter anguish like scream therapy so he can leave it be and move on and find peace but those 20 minutes are filled with some of the ugliest most harrowing reflections on self-hate survivor's guilt suicide and you know like there, there there's even a song where i don't know because i don't know how his friends have died or anything you know but like there's one song where the lyric it's, a, it's one of the shortest cuts and the lyrics are just like you know there was traffic in Austin and, and he's like describing himself not being able to get somewhere. And then he says, when you gave yourself up to the crushing relief of a car. Oh my God. 
So I'm assuming it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, about yeah. and 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 that's it. It's just these succinct lyrics about like yeah. So it's a like I'm getting shivers talking about it again because and also there's something to be said for Cambusher's vocals because he's got a real lovely lackadaisical emo style fucking Rivers Cuomo influenced vocal in sorority noise, but. Like in all grey, he gives any of the late nineties screamo vocalists a run for their harrowing mm. money. Like he, it, 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 there's no affected inflection here. Like this is raw to the bone, throat shredding catharsis, like of the most vulnerable, like unsettling order to a point where you almost feel guilty for listening to it. Yeah. You feel, like, you feel like it's the recordings of a a project that was done in a garage to never be heard by anyone except just to expel the emotions and feelings that are on it. If you, if you want, if if you're done with the horror movies and you want something like garden state or Requiem for a dream to bring you down to a really sobering unsettling place of guilt, all grace, slow burn. It, it, it's 20 minutes that like, you know, you could listen to three really generic metal songs, 20 minutes, or you could listen to an 11 track, screamo project mm. that is designed to provoke in i've never shown this album to anyone who hasn't come back to me and been like what the fuck did yeah. i just listen i'm definitely gonna check that out man definitely it's a uh, it sounds like terrifying so it uh, i feel like it, it sits really well on on our list and uh it, it it's actually providing a, a really nice kind of counterpoint to my last pick um i think i don't think my last pick could be any more different um, this clocks in. So yours is eleven minutes or eleven songs in twenty minutes, and this is nine songs in an hour and twelve minutes. Uh, um, I was kind of torn on what to go for here, but I wanted to include something from the Godfather of extreme music, Mister Tom G. Warrior. He of Hellhammer. He of Celtic Frost. Um, so. When it comes to Mr. Warrior, there are many options. And I was I was very close to picking something from Celtic Frost. I was super tempted by 2006's Monotheist because that record it's, is so fucking scary and it's I, so good. I could nearly, I could have nearly, instead of doing an album, just done A Dying God Coming Into Human Flesh. Yeah, That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And obviously to Megatherian, you know, like fucking Celtic Frost, there's plenty of fodder there. But I didn't. I came forward in time and I arrived at his third project and his current project, Triptychon, and their debut album, Eparistera Daimonis. I have no idea if I pronounced that correct. Um, this record is a lot. It is like a lot, a lot. It's so heavy. It's so intense. It's so grand sounding. It's like towering, monolithic behemoths, like stalking the earth, like almost Cthulhu-esque again. You know, these giant creatures like waking destruction upon anything they meet. And it is so evil sounding. And it is a really, really interesting record because uh, it was... I don't really know the ins and outs of Celtic Frost and how they broke up and everything, but Tom G. Warrior said that this was the record that was supposed to follow up Monotheist. Um, and, but starting a new project allowed them to try a couple of new things um, musically. But I mean, 
when this record goes, it's so heavy. The first song, Gosha, G-O-E-T-I-A, Goetia, I don't really know how to pronounce it, um, is like fucking brutal. Brutal. It's got this like classic Tom G Warrior riff. Some of these like fucking grunted vocals, bellowed shrieks, and it's just it's incredible. It's so powerful. Uh, every drum hit, every guitar line, every single vocal utterance like is just in your face, like punching you. There's no like, there's no respite for an hour and 12 minutes of just phenomenal, grand, oppressive. It's not death metal and it's not black metal. It's just extreme avant-garde rock almost so in it kind of spiritually continuing on those later celtic frost records almost in that same vein exactly it's there are definitely some like doom elements but there's also like you know the weird like noise noisy bastard music you know like yeah fucking acid bath and like melvins and there's stuff like that in here as well and it's it's a really weird project and it's a really weird band, but they're utterly brilliant. Like they're not, this is not a record I listen to like every couple of months. This is a record I've, since 2010, I've probably listened to once or twice a year, you know, when it came out, I listened to it a lot. And now it's like a kind of dark treat that you put on. To be like, oh shit! Oh, you sold it to me. I've never ever listened to this, or I'm I'm completely unfamiliar with this this group. I I'm I'm so checking this out for my Halloween season. Oh man, Triptychon are like really down your alley. I think there's like there there are moments of like you know New Orleans sludge almost on it, like with these huge like do 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 do. Grinding, punishing, harrowing, brutal riffs. And it's about the kind of power of it. It's really like it is really that 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 sense of like, you know, the creature rising up from the deep, like the kind of world ending devastation, all out like war of horror and brutality. And it's but it's brutal in a in a different way to like early Celtic Frost, and it's brutal in a different way to Cannibal Corpse, or you know, it's it's this is not emotionally devastating. It's just like almost like you know claustrophobic, you know, in dread inducing. Like it's yeah, dread filled, and like yeah, it's 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 hard to describe, but like. Like I said, nine songs in an hour and 12 minutes. And one of those songs is only an hour, one minute and 43 seconds. So it's really eight songs in an hour and <laughs> 10 minutes. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot. But, uh, and their follow-up record as well. Oh God, let me see. Uh, um, it's Milana, Milana Casmata. Okay, I, I apologize if I butchered these pronunciations. But yeah, the one I've gone for is 2010. Paris there at Damonist because I did want to pick Monotheist and I think that this album is quite close to Monotheist but it's different as well it's a different brand of evil and a different if you're familiar with the work of Celtic Frost 
you might have some expectations of what's going to come on this record. But it'll still surprise you. It's still different. It's still punishing and yeah, avant-garde. It's an extreme rock band rather than extreme metal at points. It's, it's, yeah, it's fucking great, man. It's so, so good. And it's dank and it's dark and it's completely evil sounding. But it's also, oh, it's also produced oh, really, really well. Like really well. They're all, uh, you know, you said dark, dank. And what was the other one? Completely fucking evil. Yeah, all you know, all boxes that need to be ticked to be in the Halloween list. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And uh, I think it, th- this is a record that uh, if you haven't heard it, I mean, there's definitely a lot of people out there who haven't heard this record. And in the world of extreme, because of Tom G. Warrior being in the band, Triptychon are a big enough deal. Um, so I would really recommend anyone who's into like extreme music of all its shades. Because I think you'd consider like industrial extreme. You'd consider noise rock extreme music, you know. And I I think that Triptychon touching all of those things. But again, a bit like Ghost, they're only tied to Ghost. There's a dose of Satan in there as well. And I just, but this is real Satan. This is not like Scooby-Doo Satan. This is real Satan. You know, it's, uh, it's fucking great. Like if you think of, if you even look at the ty- the songs, like there's Goetia, there's Abyss Within My Soul, In Shrouds Decayed, A Thousand Lines, My Pain. You know, it's like, it's, you know, it's heavy shit. And it's, yeah, it's fucking grim and it's scary and it's perfect. It's a perfect place to leave you on our Halloween episode. It's fucking fantastic. Sounds like it's quite a, you know, wander through the Scandinavian forests and lose your soul to like nature's black chasms type of vibes. I think less forests and more mountains. More mountains, more yeah. more, more monolithic caves and shit. Yeah, like getting lost in a valley somewhere and on either side of you are these huge mountains that you're like, I am trapped here forever. Class. Tripticon, a Paris there at Daemonis. There is no escape. You know, it's fucking great. It's fucking great. And uh, yeah, scary music is fucking great. <laughs> I mean, all like, different shades. I'm really I mean, proud of us. We've chosen like really different music. Yeah. It's good. And I'm I'm also I'm proud of us as well for finding enough great fucked up scary albums to do a second installment of this because this has been so so much fun. Yeah, uh, I will say though that you know uh, just for clarity, I. I, I I listen to my scary albums all year round, just like I watch my horror movies all year round. But uh, if if the, if the Halloween season is your time to really like get into some spooky shit, definitely at least one of these albums will 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 provoke some some strong emotion similar to watching a horror movie. I do think absolutely, absolutely, some oral horror from further yeah. record. And uh, thanks a million for listening. As always, this was episode sixty nine. but it was also part two of our scary records so thank you as always for tuning in this has been for the record we appreciate you listening as always tell your friends share us about if you feel like it enjoy your halloween throw on some scary movies throw on some scary tunes and have a fucking blast and uh we'll talk to you in the next one for something equally terrifying Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Not really. Uh, my name is Sean Tierney. His name is Zach Buggy. This has been For the Record. We'll talk to you soon. Music is the best. Halloween is the best, sure. Bye.